Welcome to Valley Baptist University, an online ministry of Valley Baptist Church, where we seek to worship God with all our minds. I'm Eric Hahn, Dean of VBU. This segment is part three on the subject Christianity versus the new spirituality, or sometimes called progressive Christianity. Today we explore the question, is morality purely subjective? Hey everyone, welcome back. I wonder if you've ever heard someone say, well, that might be your good, but that's not my good, or, or that might be your wrong, but that's actually not my wrong, or not wrong for me. We've been on the subject of Christianity versus progressive spirituality, or sometimes called progressive Christianity, which is often what people deconstruct into when they deconstruct away from Christianity. We've looked at some of the core tenets. One is that everything is one. God encompasses everything, all of nature. And so if we want to discover God, we discover the divine within, which is in essence self-discovery. Now, within that worldview, we might ask the question, how does one discover right and wrong of morality? Well, simply put, just like you might imagine, people look within themselves. Their perspective is that morality is based on their own subjective feelings and experiences. Now, there are terms for this. This is called subjective morality or maybe moral relativity, meaning that morals are subjective to the individual or relative to the individual's perspective and experience. Now, I'm going to give you a visual, and I justify this because I, I want to give you a way of thinking about this to get to the root of the influence. Now, some of this we've looked at in some broken down ways, but I want to give you a big picture and give you the analogy of a tree. So if you think about a tree and authors of influence on progressive spirituality, I want to put up the names of a couple pastors and a couple musicians. So pastors and authors of influence are Rob Bell and Colby Martin, and then musicians and even authors are also Michael Gunger and Kevin Max. Now, if you think of them as the branches and the leaves of this tree, then where are they growing out of? Well, you'll find in your research that they all quote the author Richard Rohr. So you might think of Richard Rohr as being like the trunk of the tree. In fact, concerning this book, The Universal Christ, in just the last couple years, there was a six-month period on Amazon where next to the Bible, this was the number one selling book on Amazon about Jesus. But then we might ask, well, who does Richard Rohr stem from? Who does he quote from? Well, as you go into the universal Christ, you find Richard Rohr lands hard on someone we've referenced before, the Swiss psychologist and spiritualist Carl Jung. So think of those other authors and pastors, and that's not in a totality. That's not comprehensive. There's many, 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 but many of them will quote Richard Rohr. And then Richard Rohr quotes Carl Jung. Think of him as being like the stump or the roots of the tree of new spirituality. 
And it's not just Rohr, but Young is actually highlighted prominently at the progressivechristianity.org website. And on that site, Don Murray even says that even though Young didn't consider himself a theologian, he says his belief is that Jung will turn out to be the most important theologian of the 20th century. Richard Rohr says in his book that Jung was neither an atheist nor an anti-Christian. In fact, he says he's more Christian than the critics who call him anti-Christian. Now, this is where we begin to get into questioning Rohr and some others about their deception. Are they just ignorant or are they willfully trying to deceive people? Ultimately, I lead that up to God, but I want to show you that Richard Rohr is either unstudied or deceptive. There is a book by Dr. Richard Knoll, a psychologist, a postdoctoral fellow at Harvard. He is not a Christian. Dr. Richard Knoll says specifically that Jung was waging war against Christianity. He was actually training his disciples to listen to the voice of the dead and to become gods themselves. Now, Rohr does say that Jung was highly critical of his Christian heritage, so he was rebounding from that. However, what Rohr leaves out about Carl Jung is that not only was he in the lineage of some Christians, but Dr. Hurd, who is an Anglican who made a presentation to an association of Anglicans in Canada, he did research from John Kerr, and in his book, A Most Dangerous Method, he says that Jung's family had a cult linkage on both sides. In fact, his maternal family's long-term involvement was with seances and ghosts. He also quotes Kerr in commenting that Young was heavily involved for many years with his mother and two female cousins in hypnotically induced seances. And Young even wrote up the seances in his medical dissertation. Keep in mind, once again, this is the grandfather of the new spirituality, Carl Jung, and he was a practicing occultist. Not only that, Jeffrey Satinover, who was an insider at the Jungian Institute and a Yale psychologist, wrote in his book, The Empty Self, that Jung claimed that he acquired a spirit guide guru named Philemon, who was described by Jung as an old man with the horns of a bull and the wings of a fish. Remember that there were people who leave Christianity saying, because you believe God's an old man with a beard. Young believed that he had a spirit guru that had the horns of a bull and the wings of a fish. Now, before being Philemon, he thought that the creature appeared to Jung as Elijah and then finally mutated to Ka, an Egyptian earth soul that came from below. Richard Rohr says that Jung was highly critical of his Christian heritage because he did not find in it much transformation or what he called whole-making. Now, here's where we see a clear differentiation between a Christian worldview and progressive spirituality. Progressive spirituality, the New Age movement, Carl Jungian spirituality, has this concept of whole-making, and as Richard Rohr himself says, for Jung, this was not to be confused with moralism. In fact, 
authors write this, that for young, holiness is replaced by wholeness, which means to integrate the good and evil parts of one personality. Jung even says too few have experienced the divine image as the innermost possession of their souls. The whole man realizes his brotherhood with all living things, even with inorganic matter and the cosmos itself. There's that one-ism. He says a person must meet with the archetypes or the pictures of the collective unconscious, especially through dream work. If he's fortunate enough, he will end and find the archetype of wholeness, the self. Richard Knoll, again, not a Christian, he says Jung's techniques took away from people's ability to focus their attention and separate their thoughts. He says their cognitive resources were just shot. People accuse Christians of checking their brain at the door, but Knoll says in Jungian spirituality, he caused people's cognitive resources to be shot because all he did was induce visions all the time. His patients were constantly lost in their dreams and visions, looking for mythic symbols, signs of Greek gods and goddesses. Noel even goes on to say, from a World War I onward, Jung explicitly would tell people in therapy to keep a visionary diary like he did. And his followers actually called his vision book the Bible. And eventually they were all producing their own Bibles and Noel says it was like every person was his own prophet. Well, someone might ask, well, maybe that's just the past with Jung and that people don't really take that and believe that anymore about wholeness versus morality, about discovering the moral within. Well, this is currently on the Jungian Center website. It reads that man is a morally responsible being. Okay, that sounds good. But this is one who voluntarily or involuntarily submits to the morality that he himself has created. In other words, he's his own God. He's his own prophet. He has spiritual experiences and then creates his own morality. It also says on the Jungian website, in the end, good and evil are human judgments. And what is good for one man is evil for another Beyond that, Jung says himself in dreams and reflections, he says we must beware of thinking of good and evil as absolute opposites. Recognition of the reality of evil necessarily relativizes the good and the evil likewise, converting both into halves of a paradoxical whole. So that's a lot of gobbledygook, but here's a summary. Instead of holiness, coming from the New Testament Greek hagios, which means to set apart, God is holy, we are unholy. If we are to be like God in his character, for one thing, we are to attain that through his holy son, Jesus, and then we grow in holiness, which means to be set apart from sin and evil. Jungian spirituality says, no, 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 that's not holiness. Think of holiness as wholeness. There's not a separation, but there's a joining together of what we call opposites, good and evil. And this is not done through personally knowing God through Jesus because he died for us. This is done through having mystical experiences and visions. And then somehow, subjectively, people become their own prophets and create their own 
morality. Sort of like a pin that just kind of puts this on a bulletin board and finalizes it. Much like in today's culture, Jung says in his books, uh, the book Memories, Dreams, and Reflections on the subject of Hindu thought, he says, good or evil are then regarded at most as my good or my evil, and whatever seems to me good or evil. Now, we might step back and say, well, how does that play out? How did Jung's morality play out putting feet on the ground and living the life as he walked through? Well, what you're going to find out, and keep in mind, Carl Jung is the grandfather of the new spirituality. He's quoted by Richard Rohr as being more Christian than most Christians. He's described on the Progressive Christianity website as the most important theologian of the last century. What you're going to find in your research is that Jung lived a life of perpetual adultery. In fact, they even expunged it. His family and disciples expunged one of his longtime mistresses of 40 years, Tony Wolf, and they also expunged insults against the Christian church from, from some of the early writings about Jung. And if you base this on McLean and McGuire's writings, there's little doubt that exists that Jung had several extramarital affairs. In fact, numerous sources note that he wrote a letter to Sigmund Freud, January 30, 1910, that the prerequisite for a good marriage, he says, it seems to me, is the license to be unfaithful. Sebastian Fox quotes from Katrine Clay's book, again, Not Christians, a book called Labyrinth about the marriage of Carl and his wife, Emma. She says, as a husband, a father, and a younger man, Jung appears to have been close to intolerable. He was physically large, selfish, bowling, and loud of voice. He cheated at games. He had a vile temper and appalling table manners and thought men should be polygamous, but that his wife, Emma, should be his alone. So as we stop right there, Jung's subjective morality played out into everyday life. Well, it includes adultery. It even includes, you could say, a version of misogyny. Again, this is the grandfather of the new spirituality that people are deconstructing into. Here's another author, Jennifer Sr., columnist for the New York Times, not a Christian publication. She quotes from this same book saying, perhaps the most challenging discovery Emma would make was that her husband had a keen aversion to monogamy. Over the course of his career, he would develop intense attachments to female patients. Now let's stop right there. So by drumming up his own self-profit morality, he's an adulterer. He's arguably a misogynist. He has a non-egalitarian view about polygamy with his wife as compared to himself. And now he's in a professional position where he's having sexual relations with female patients. 
This even flies in the face of what we today call the Me Too movement. For some reason, people seem to say that they're leaving Christianity because it's oppressive, and they go to the new spirituality, which has its root stump and grandfather, Carl Jung, who was practicing all these things. The New York Times author even summarizes saying many whom would later become analysts themselves are these female patients. One is Tony Wolf, who became the muse to his darker side. Carl insisted on her full inclusion in the family, which the children naturally despised. And she accompanied the Youngs to dinner parties and trips abroad for decades. Carl Jung brought his living mistress into their family in front of the kids. This could almost be considered abuse of the kids. And he's the grandfather of the new spirituality. Well, how did he justify this? Dr. Peter Jones quotes an author who says, well, he justified all this adultery and polygamy by saying nothing matters but the completion of the self. See, it's about wholeness, not holiness. A biblical worldview would say, have a holy marriage that practices monogamy and faithfulness. Carl Jung says, no, I've had all these visions. And through my visions, I'm going through the process of experiencing wholeness. And if something's in the way of my wholeness, it doesn't matter if somebody calls it moral or not. Now, does everybody concede to that about Jung? Stephen Holler does. He's at the Gnostic Young website, the Gnostic Society Library website. He says, like a true Gnostic, Carl Jung recognized even at best, goodness is no substitute for wholeness. In fact, he frequently said that in the long run, what matters is not goodness or obedience to moral laws, but only and simply the fullness of being. Now, without going down too much of a rabbit trail, that's gonna sound very ambiguous. This is called individuation. And Young's longtime lover, Tony Wolf, was considered Young's anima, which was one of the stages of individuation. And he had his wife so convinced of this worldview that his wife, Emma, reluctantly bought into this. I want you to stop and I want you to think to yourself. You might be thinking when we started, yes, I'm a moral relativist and I ascribe to my good, your good. If what I'm saying about Carl Jung's actions are disturbing to you or wrong, I wanna challenge you that you're probably not really a moral relativist. Now, I know what pushback can be. Somebody will say, well, that doesn't mean that progressive spirituality today is going down a Jungian path. I mean, he could come up with some things even though his character was bad and he applied it in different ways. Other people today aren't applying it that way. Eric, you're committing the genetic fallacy. I know what that is, but am I? Elisa Childers describes Glennon Doyle in her book, Untamed, who defends leaving her husband and her children for another woman. And she defends that by an encapsulation that pushed her decision over the edge by quoting, guess who? Carl Jung. And paraphrasing Carl Jung's statement that pushed her over the edge, his statement was, there's nothing worse you can do for your kids than for them to see your life unfulfilled. 
In traditional biblical moral framework, we would say that a husband and wife sacrifice for each other, sacrifice for the good of their kids. They give of themselves for someone else. In the new spirituality worldview of progressive Christianity, the worldview is no, you have to seek self-fulfillment at the sacrifice of others. Now let's compare this to a biblical worldview. Very quickly, a biblical worldview teaches objective morality, meaning it's not subject merely to a person's opinions or feelings. What is moral is moral for everyone, whether they believe it or not. Isaiah 5, 20 says, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness into place of light and light for darkness. Whether or not you see yourself as practicing individuation or trying to achieve wholeness, it says in verse 21, Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes. You know that the Bible even records people trying this. In the book of Judges, 21-25, it, des it describes pretty much the entire period of people at that time. It says, everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And the book of Judges is people living out essentially a train wreck. And it's a message for us today that if everyone just does what's right in their own eyes, culture and our lives are going to be a train wreck. Okay, not only that, a biblical worldview says that moral relativism is actually self-refuting. And here's where we get into this boomerang nonsense again. It's like saying there should not be should nots. Somebody says, I don't believe in absolute should nots. Do you mean that there absolutely should not be absolute should nots? It's self-refuting. It explodes. It's like a suicide bomb. Romans 2.1 says it this way. It says, after following a list of sins that includes all of our sins, therefore you are inexcusable for in whatever you judge another, you condemn yourself. In other words, once you make an absolute judgment about someone else, you're condemning yourself saying that judgment is a reality. It, it is just. Here's something else. Most people who claim to be moral relativists are actually not. I challenge anyone to read the first chapter in C.S. Lewis' book, Mere Christianity, where he makes those funny words in his statement. He says, once somebody says morality is not objective, not binding for everyone, he says, as soon as you say Jack Robinson, someone's taking exception to something being wrong or not fair. Here's another way of putting it, but we hear a lot from progressive spirituality, but it's about love. Christians don't practice love. Do the loving thing. The first thing we might ask about Carl Jung and about Miss Doyle, were those the loving things to do with their wife, husband, and family? See, the progressive Christian view is very incomplete on their idea about love. What is the loving thing? Colby Martin likes to point out Jesus saying the greatest commandment, love the Lord your God, love your neighbor as yourself. And that's true. But when Jesus said, love the Lord your God with heart, soul, mind, and strength and neighbor as yourself, that's a summary of the Ten Commandments. The first four are directed to the Lord. No other God before me. How do I love the Lord? I don't worship idols. I certainly don't worship myself. The last six are directed to our neighbors, which includes you shall not commit adultery. 
Practicing genuine love according to the Bible is loving your spouse enough to not commit adultery against your spouse. The historic biblical Christian view of love is unpacked in numerous places. In 1 Corinthians 13, it doesn't just say that love is patient and kind. Love is those things, but it also says love rejoices in the truth. In 1 John 3, 16, it says, By this we know love, that Jesus laid down his life for us. We also ought to lay down our life for others. It doesn't say that Jesus exemplified love by discovering his wholeness or by experiencing individuation. He didn't just leave an example of a fulfilled life. No, it says in the book of Philippians that he emptied himself. Love was not just expressing himself. So many in our culture, though, who claim moral relativism, what they often do in the same book, they put up a big fight for justice. Now, in love, I want you to really think today how these can reconcile. Progressive Christianity, noted by Richard Rohr as being Jungian, is at best my good or my evil versus someone else's good or someone else's evil. Why do I have all this attitude of being bent out of shape that justice should be served if somebody else is just practicing and expressing their good? Suddenly, we start calling it evil and we want the hammer of justice when we just lay down a framework that doesn't even give a foundation for that. Progressive spirituality has a view of moral sin and evil that at the most is merely people who haven't discovered their true selves. Richard Rohr and others will say, but, but there's so many people who call themselves Christians and they don't they don't love. But see, usually they're using anecdotal sweeping generalizations. They haven't done research on that. But if you research historic biblical theology, you're going to find that the Bible and a Christian worldview actually accounts for that. I in no way want to diminish the fact that somebody went to a church or got burned by a Christian, but you realize from our biblical Christian worldview, we would account for that by saying Jesus and the disciples taught that there's such a thing as false Christians. In our Christianese, we would say there's a chance, maybe a good chance, that they're not saved. Jesus said there will be a time when he will stand in the end times and those who call themselves Christians, he will say, depart from me, I never knew you. Now, compare that and contrast that with William Paul Young, author of The Shack, and his subsequent theological book, Lies Christians Believe. Paul Young says there are no unsaved people. Paul Young says no one has ever been separated from God by their sin. Their problem's not even sin. They have God within. They've just forgotten its amnesia and forgetfulness. Now, in your heart, using your mind, think about the ramifications of this. I wonder how many watching this like watching true crime investigation documentaries. My wife does. She always has those on. Oh, let's see if this person really uh, committed the crime. Why do people watch that? They watch that as much as anything to see at the end if justice is served. 
This lady who drowned her entire family in a car driving it into a river, are they gonna find out that she did it? It looks like the evidence is that she did. If they can just get one more piece of evidence, justice will be served. You realize that the framework for that is coming from a biblical worldview. Our Bible teaches that God is the ultimate, eternal, just judge. And everyone who has raped somebody and been a serial killer, but they just got slapped on the wrist and given community service and they were out in three years, the biblical truth is they will stand before God and there will be an accounting. Hebrews 9.27 says it's been appointed for man once to die and then the judgment. God is the ultimate just judge. If this isn't true, if we're going by merely a union, progressive spirituality worldview about morality, think of its ramifications. Let's just go extreme on it. Adolf Hitler did not really sin in a way that separated him from God. Adolf Hitler already had the Christ within because we believe in the universal Christ. Adolf Hitler simply forgot his true identity and he had perhaps the wrong contemplative mystical meditation experience that he should have had. He could have discovered his true self, which is divine within. That could even apply to his cohorts, his minions, Heinrich Himmler, who, who tortured and and executed thousands of people. Adolf Eichmann, who masterminded the final solution. This could even apply to all of those guards who separated Jewish women into their own barracks to use them for their own pleasure before exterminating them. They all had the Christ within in the universal Christ worldview. They just hadn't experienced the mystical meditation that they needed in order to discover their true selves, which is the divine within. A side note, ironically, about that is that Carl Jung had some tendencies toward anti-Semitism and as a Nazi sympathizer. I don't know what Jung would think about Hitler. I don't know what he would say, but his worldview says he hadn't discovered the divine within yet. He needed to just try to individuate to experience wholeness. How about Charles Manson, the mastermind of the late 60s, 70s of, of the serial killing? Charles Manson also didn't really sin to separate him from God. If he had, perhaps he only missed the contemplative mystical meditation to discover his divine true self, the divine within. Think about every racist, every slave owner, every racist during the civil rights movement of the 60s who hosed down peaceful protesters. They didn't sin, not sin separating them from Christ. They had the Christ within. They just didn't know the correct contemplative mystic meditation in order to discover their true selves, which is the divine within. Everybody who's ever taken a gun into a bar of practicing homosexual people and just opened fire on them, they actually didn't sin separating them from God either. They just didn't have the contemplative mystic meditation to discover their true selves, which is the divine within. You realize that according to this worldview, when these ones cross the divide 
of death. If justice hasn't been served in this world, that's it. And when they see God, even if God is a personal being, which in progressive Christianity, most of them don't hold that, but when they're dissolved into the cosmos that they call God, all they're going to discover is themselves and that they didn't integrate the other side of themselves. Oh, after torturing all these Jews, I guess, you know, when I did that, I just forgot. In fact, they won't even experience shame because Richard Rohr says explicitly that God's words never shame. Now, some of you are thinking as you're watching these videos, Eric, you're triggering me. Eric, you were just wrong. Now, wait a minute. What did you just say? You realize in your new spirituality, progressive Christian worldview, you don't even have a framework for saying this. At the very worst, all I'm doing is expressing my own truth. And the wrong would be me just tapping into the dark side of my divine within that I'm supposed to discover and balance. And my cure wouldn't be shame because God's words never shame, according to Richard Rohr, my cure would not even be a confession or repentance or acquiescence to truth, but instead to balance my divine within, my cosmic remembrance through contemplative mystical meditation. And how am I to come to that? A lot of people will say, well, you Christians are just so insular. I mean, if you would just open your mind and read Maybe some are, maybe many are. I, I don't think I am. I don't think I'm closed off from these things. In fact, I like to give people challenges. I like to tell people sometimes, I'll read all your sources if you'll read all my sources. Sometimes I even say, I'll read all of your sources if you'll read one-tenth of my sources. Now, on this subject, from the key players, the key speakers, I've read Rob Bell, I've read multiple... Bell and McLaren. I've read William Paul Young, both of his books. I've read Mike McCarg's Finding God in the Waves. I've read Richard Rohr, Colby Martin. I've read Carl Jung. I've even read June Singer, who is a disciple of Young's book, Androgyny. Now, someone will say, Eric, you're not supposed to read. You're supposed to experience. In fact, Richard Rohr says, we need a more contemplative way of knowing. Ironically, Richard Rohr has written over 30 books. I mean, if we're not supposed to learn propositionally, why so much ink wasted on it? But, but even if that's true, I've actually watched Gene Houston, a new spiritualist shaman, who at a spirituality conference spoke words over people in a mystic contemplative way. It was accompanied by the music of Paco Bell's canon. And she said, you can sense yourself now as being divine and one with the cosmos. Now, I don't know what I was supposed to experience with that, but watching that, I'm going to honestly say, all I experienced was ambiguity. And if I'm going to speak subjectively, I would say in my heart, I was both thinking and feeling, no, I'm not all those things. I'm not one with the cosmos. I'm not divine. I'm a human being. I'm not God. I'm a creation of God.
I'm a sinner saved by grace through faith in Jesus who took my just punishment on the cross as ultimate act of love and verified his identity rising from the dead, which is the most plausible explanation of a series of events surrounding his resurrection. His spirit lives in me and helps me to follow him today, but I am not him. I still remain distinct from him. Now, I do wanna say in fairness, in watching that experience, I don't know if I was supposed to take hallucinogens along with that. Now that sounds a little snarky, maybe it is, but keep in mind that Carl Jung is the grandfather of modern new spirituality. He died in 1961. You might remember that in the 60s and 70s following him, his practitioners, his ideologists, would take drugs in order to experience a higher consciousness. People are not always understanding why in that generation drugs were being taken. My generation, Generation X, is just, hey dude, let's get high. The 60s were different than that. They were trying to experience higher consciousness. A lot of people forget that the quintessential gathering, Woodstock, was called an Aquarian Festival. The concept of Aquarian is lifted right out of the lips of Carl Jung. Now, I'm not gonna take drugs, but I will read whatever someone wants to read. I'm gonna give others a consideration for a reading list too. A Charles Manson proclaimed himself Christ. He gave his followers drugs in order to believe it. Jim Jones, from whom we coined the term drink the Kool-Aid in Guyana when he murdered all those people, he once preached, you can look at this online. He preached, I am God and you are God. And he gave his followers drugs. Now, I'm not gonna take drugs, but if there's a book I need to read, if there's a video I need to watch, I'm not gonna go to a seance. But I do want to encourage people several sources, and these are pretty simple. One is simply the Bible. I'm not even gonna challenge you to read the whole Bible, although that would be advantageous. But I wanna challenge people, if you're being tempted, if you're thinking, I'm just gonna go the progressive spiritual route, read the Gospel of John, read Romans, read 1 Corinthians 15. Read where John says, these things I've written that you may believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may have life in his name. And read where in John 1, he says, as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become the children of God. He didn't say as many as discover the divine within, they discover a reminder that they're already children of God. Read Elisa's book, Elisa Childers, Another Gospel. Read Peter Jones' book, The Other worldview. Here's another one for general consideration. Read Dr. J.P. Moreland, someone we had here not long ago, his book, Scaling the Secular City. Now, next time I'm going to go ahead and do a wrap up on all of this, but I want you to know that I'm praying for you. I'm praying that you won't be deceived. I'm praying that you won't take one experience or two or several and extrapolate that into the whole worldview that, that's an extrapolation that disses unnecessarily an entire Christian worldview. God bless you and we'll see you again on those subjects next time. Thank you for being with us here at VBU. For further reading on this, see the book, The Other Worldview by Dr. Peter Jones 
and more specifically for today's topic, the book Another Gospel, and also Live Your Truth and Other Lies, both by Elisa Childers, as well as Scaling the Secular City by Dr. J.P. Moreland. We'll see you next time for segment number eight in this series as we explore the question, what if I've had a bad experience with Christianity?